Thank you for your interest in Wellness for Educators. We are invested in and passionate about supporting educators worldwide with trauma and equity informed practices and strategies for well being and social and emotional learning through a variety of disciplines, offering a wide array of professional learning opportunities, such as book studies, webinars, a podcast, and microcourses, and partnering with educational organizations to provide educators with multiple perspectives collections of tools, and a supportive community, we are dedicated to helping educators build resiliency. We also house an online wellness library filled with short video, audio, and text-based guidance on self-care strategies from the disciplines of yoga, mindfulness, meditation, qigong, and more. Learn more at wellnessforeducators.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for the first Wellness for Educators webinar. I am Dr. Katherine Kennedy. I'm an education consultant and researcher in the areas of online learning, uh, well-being, trauma-informed practices, and social-emotional learning. And Wellness for Educators is based in Midcoast, Maine, and through all of our programs, uh, we are honored and grateful to be able to work with so many educators worldwide, including the wonderful ones who have joined us for today's panel. Um, and we also offer a number of other things, including a wellness library for uh, $25 a year. It's filled with short five-minute wellness strategies that you can use for yourself as well as for your students and colleagues. And our programs include, um, but are not limited to, I'll switch over to our um, website here. It's wellnessforeducators.com. Um, professional learning opportunities through book studies. We're actually just starting one this, uh, actually last week on Permission to Feel, Mark Brackett's new book. It's awesome. Um, definitely worth uh, jumping into webinars like this one, which is our first one. We also have personalized workshops for different schools and districts who are interested in conferences. And coming up soon, we'll be doing some micro courses um, and badging opportunities as well as a podcast. So we hope that you jump in there and get involved in the community. It's a wonderful, supportive community, and we'd love to have you be part of it. And we are so excited about our panel today, where we will focus on well-being in education and sharing strategies and tools from our wonderful panelists. During our time together today, we also want you to be part of the conversation. So please be sure to share your strategies, tools, and resources in the chat area. And feel free to also add your questions in the chat area too, and I'll keep an eye on that throughout their time and we'll share those with our uh, questions with our panelists as we go. So I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Michelle to introduce herself first. Michelle? Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Michelle Kinder and I'm a family therapist by trade and worked for 20 years with Momentus Institute, which is an organization devoted to social emotional health and children and works deeply at the intersection of mental health and education. And one of our chief findings was that if we're going to take the best possible care of children in regard to their social emotional health, we have to take care of the adults who care for the children. And so that's my interest in this topic and this community, and I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful, Michelle, thank you so much. And I'll pass it over to Alejandra. 
Hi, I'm Alejandra Ramos. Um, I do, I have like a lot of different hats, I think, but they're all connected. Um, well, during the day, I'm a teacher. I'm a dual language gifted and talented educator um, here in Dallas. Uh, when I'm not teaching, I'm a writer, but uh, mindfulness and social emotional learning is a really important part of my life, mostly because of um, experiences with mental health and growing up as a gifted and talented student myself. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in in, in teaching that to my students and incorporating that into our everyday lessons and not just as something for our to-do list, right? Something that they really embody and that they understand. But it's also really important for us teachers to, to receive trainings on it, to really understand it. And so we can pass it to our students and also communicate it to the parents and just help them understand of how uh, social emotional learning and emotional intelligence really um, it's, it, it shows in all of the different aspects of our life, not just in education, not just in the classroom, but in everything that we do. That's so very true. Uh, okay, so we'll move on to Rex, if you can introduce yourself too. Sure. So uh, my company is called MindShift, and we're a research firm and primarily we work in architecture, engineering, and construction. So I'm a bit of an outlier in this. I'm a futurist by degree in my undergrad and master's. And the area, the, the way we got into this research was about eight years ago when we were looking at culture in the workplace, but then culture in learning and education. So a company brought, uh, hired me to help us put together a, a research process that we've developed on looking at what we call wicked problems. So why has education performance been stuck? Why is disengagement stuck? You know, 70% of teachers are considered to be disengaged. So during that research, I met Michelle and Michelle became our guide into the whole world of emotional intelligence and social emotional literacy. So we ended the first book called Humanizing the Education Machine, but then I went to an educational workshop um, and we started seeing that mental health was really the central issue uh, underlying all the performance issues. And so Michelle's work in making sure teachers are cared for became a central thread and Michelle is also a co-author of the new book called Whole. So I won't get into the research and how we got there, but that's a little bit of how I got here. Yay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm a lousy marketer, so. <laughs> but I'm glad you you are a good one. And uh, I tell you, the journey has been incredible, but even more importantly, it's become autobiographical. I saw my children's experience through the lens of our research, and it was really heartbreaking because our, our children are not typical. Uh, I've got a daughter with Asperger's and son with severe ADHD and another one who's just extremely introvert and they all have stories, they're all adopted. And so all of a sudden I started seeing through the research that what they've experienced, um, I wish I knew then what I know now. And so now the mission is to make sure nobody goes through what we went through in trying to navigate through a system that's not very friendly, not very humanizing, uh, and in the end, uh, damages teachers and kids. 
Yeah, I think the the relationship building piece, I know the a lot of the research that I do in online learning specifically, and especially since it's booming now with COVID, unfortunately, um, the relationship building part is so crucial um, in order for us not to feel isolated. And I think that that has a lot to do with mental health conditions soaring even more so now because we are isolated, physically distanced, and not connecting in the usual ways that we do with people. So I'm right there with you um, with everything that you've found in your research. And I I do think um, a lot of the work that I've been working on through the Wellness for Educators um, stuff has been through trauma and stress and like looking at um, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory and how it's built around the idea of the vagus nerve and how it hits every single one of our major organs and how if we're not taking care of ourselves, reducing our stress levels, um, you know, healing our traumas or at least, you know, sitting with them and not, you know, shoving them down like it's, it's, uh, you know, our tendency, especially, you know, coming out of a, a, like a family from, from my perspective, like my family, we used to shove everything under the rug and, you know, continue to trip over it for the rest of our lives. And so like anything that was trauma related, we wouldn't deal with it and, um, or we were taught to not deal with it. And so I think that um, it's really important to learn, uh, like Alejandro, you said, to learn those strategies to help us um, take care of ourselves and also to teach our students to be able to take care of themselves as well and be models for our colleagues too in in our field. Um, And the other thing that uh, Dr. Porges mentions is the window of tolerance and how the practices of mindfulness and meditation and yoga and all of these other places like Qigong can help us build that window of tolerance so that we are able to be more resilient. Um, So I do want to um, have Rex and Michelle, you both talk a little bit more about whole because it did come out this year. I talk about timing, (laughs) Um, especially with everything. Yeah, Yeah, everything that happened um, is happening. Um, I don't think your timing could have been any better. Uh, So what what was, and I know Rex, you talked a little bit about this, but what was your impetus for the book? And also what kind of things can people see in the book and, and learn from the book? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll share the origins, but I want to hand it off to Michelle to talk about the stress element that was really underlying. And, and of course, stress goes into trauma as well. But we had finished the first book, gotten great feedback, you know, about humanizing the education machine. We did deal with social emotional literacy and looking at adverse childhood experiences to inform what's happening to kids. Uh, I went to a leadership training workshop from a high tech firm in New York City for educators. So they do pro bono leadership training. Uh, it's a little bit like little leaguers going to try out for the Yankees. I mean, this was a high tech firm that had wonderful chef prepared lunches, things teachers would never dream of ever being able to experience. Uh, But one of the things they did is they did a resiliency test on all the teachers. Um, They did a blood pressure test, they did a balance test, uh, and they did some other tests on the last day, the founder of the company stopped everything and said, uh, 
we think we've blown it. Um, we've shown you all this great stuff, but I want to share the results of the test. And out of 75 workshops, this was the lowest rated group of any group they've ever done. Uh, and most of what they do is Air Force, military, high-performing Navy SEALs, things like that in, in Fortune 500 companies. And he said, 75% of you, we don't know how you get up in the morning. And 25% of you uh, are ready to pop. So my mind's processing, disengagement. We just wrote a book that 70% of teachers are disengaged. And I'm watching and I'm saying, whoa, what I'm seeing looks like disengagement, but it's not. Or maybe it's not. We didn't know. But I started thinking, this doesn't add up because disengagement is a, you know, gives you the impression that teachers don't care. And all the teachers we worked with cared. But what we did find, teachers get out of the business because they're burnt out. Um, they can't take the stress anymore, the, burden, the emotional burden of what's happening to their kids. And then they have this kind of survivor's remorse. You know, I left, but I left behind. So I'm trying to weigh this. And I called the underwriter for the first book. And I said, his name's Bill Latham, and he's a co-author here too. And I said, Bill, what if it's not disengagement? What if it's battle fatigue? What if it's woundedness? And it looks like it on the outside. And he said, if that's the case, then years and years of engagement workshops and trying to motivate teachers, it's all been wasted. Uh, so that's when we began two years of research with over 130 educators and stakeholders and experts. We traveled to eight cities doing what we do, very immersive workshops. We went to Los Angeles to uh, RISE. It's a school for homeless in South Central LA. Uh, that graduate, 70% of their kids graduate and go to college. And these are homeless kids, 200 homeless kids that go there. So we wanted to see what are people doing in the toughest conditions that are getting positive results. And, uh, and so that led us to a body of work. Uh, Michelle guided us through a lot of the social and emotional literacy. And um, one of the most memorable parts is the experiment she shared with us about mice. So I'm going to let you share part of part of what we're missing and why it's so important right now is that, you know, about um, almost half of teachers burn out before their first five years. Uh, teaching is now considered to be the fourth most stressful occupation behind active military, uh, behind um, uh, emergency police, law enforcement, and behind emergency response. Then it's teachers. And then fifth, it's working parents. So now you got double whammy. So we were looking at this and asking, um, so what are school, we saw a lot of good work. And what Michelle showed us is all the good work being done in schools for kids and social emotional literacy. And then when I started looking at schools, we looked at 200 and asked, what are you doing for your teachers? Zero, not one, except for the Momentous Institute. So that's when we invited Michelle and say, look, nobody's taking care of the caregivers. And we call it the caregiver's dilemma. They care so much. And um, if others come first, then by definition, it means they come last. So Michelle, I'm going to hand it off because you, you led us through a lot of 
how to take care of the caregivers and the role of stress in shutting down learning and performance. Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky to not vilify anyone in the food chain, so to speak, because um, that's where my mind goes to the systems that oppress the teachers that have created this issue that then make it difficult for them to, to create spaces for children to thrive. But if I can keep myself from being in sort of that looking for the enemy mindset, then then I can just see that it's a fear-based reaction. And our systems in education have gotten so swept by this fear-based mindset and this sort of hyper-focus on test grades and and test scores and grades and um, these markers that may or may not have anything to do with long-term success. And they've sort of shrunk into this space of, if those things don't happen, then we are failing. And they're getting squeezed from other layers. So it's like just parallel process mania. Uh, and, And that's creating this unbelievable pressure cooker for teachers who, if we can figure out some ways to pull up from that energy and that mindset, know what to do. They know what to do for kids. They know what to do for each other. None of this is rocket science. All of this comes very naturally to educators, but the system is squeezing out our capacity to well attend to the well-being of the adults in the building. And you can only give what you have. And so we're asking depleted, under-resourced adults to create safe spaces for children to thrive, and that is uh, not sustainable. And and so if you take the number and translate it, the 70% of disengaged, if you turn that into 70% are overstressed, and then how does a child respond to an adult who's stressed? Well, they either think you don't like me or you're mad at me. And so, you know, we're, we're really setting them up for a continued cycle on this. Uh, and I think we're in a perfect opportunity for a reset. I mean, how many districts are putting tests on the side? You know, we've got other stressors now that we're, we've got to deal with. But this is a chance now to break loose of the tyrant. And, and I'm in a total agreement. It's a fear-based system. We talk to superintendents and their story is, if I spend a dollar on teachers, the community is going to think I'm taking a dollar away from kids. So they're fearful. And the board, you know, I've got to report to the board. And the board is fearful because the parents have property values. And then that trickles into their expectations on their kids. You need to get into a good college. And so, and then then there's the whole group that just gets left behind anyway. 50% of kids have no shot in our system, either 25% because of learning differences or 25% because of socioeconomic reasons. And race. And to say out loud um, the importance of, of one of the biggest spaces of inequity in our systems. So my hope is that being brought to our knees with, with this system, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, the word apocalypse, you know, sounds nasty. 
what it literally means is to expose. That's what it means to reveal or expose. And I think we've exposed the inequities, the obsolescence of a system that is not leveraging digital learning, uh, not being creative and creating lifelong, I mean, all these things have been exposed and the care of teachers that's really been exposed. So I think this is a reset moment. At least that's my hope. Yeah, I would, I would hope for that as well. I know um, going back, Michelle, to something that you mentioned about uh, learning loss and gaps and, and the stress around that. And instead, because I, I, I've seen um, as a research cons and consultant, I've seen RFP or you know request for proposal after RFP talking about the need for help with learning loss and learning gaps. And there's such a negative connotation around that. Like you can take that on as an educator, as a negative thing, like what did I do to create this? And then the student can also take that on as a negative thing. What did I do to do something wrong for this? And the same thing for caregivers too at home who were working with their students, like, great, now what did I do? <laughs> it's it's kind of like the not enough factor that Brene Brown and many others have talked about. It's um, completely out of control around that whole fear base. And, and what are those measures? Like you were saying, it's just, um, you know, really arbitrary when it comes down to it, it should be first concentrating on social and emotional learning and well-being um, without the, the constant push through and pushing through and keep on going. And um, I saw an article recently about toxic positivity, like everything is great. We're going to get through this. You know, it's like in, we can't feel anything that we're feeling right now. And that's not healthy for any of us. Um, so anyway, um, I would like to jump over to you, Alejandra. Um, so based on what has been said so far, what are you seeing around you as an educator? Oh, well, um, well, I think this is a space to be like open and vulnerable, especially as an educator. Um, this past few weeks, something happened like to me as an educator that I never that I didn't think would happen. Um, and I think I, I basically like experienced burnout myself uh, two weeks ago. Um, started feeling very sick, um, kind of fever, uh, kind of thought that it was, you know, related to COVID. It wasn't. Um, and it was all related to, to stress, honestly, to stress and anxiety. Um, I'm a teacher and I think not just a teacher, I'm, I'm a person in general who likes to give it all to whatever I do. Um, and right now that's not possible. It's just not possible. We have too many factors and uh, it was a, a big wake up call for me. Um, I'm leading some social emotional initiatives at school with the district. So it was kind of in a way um, ironic that I was like the person talking about it and I'm suffering myself. Um, yeah. it, it, the biggest, the savior for me was my mom. My mom is in Mexico and she still called my doctor, uh, found a way to like help me all the way from over there. And that just really makes me think about how important parents and community members are, because if it wasn't for her, I would probably still be burned out. I like not teaching anymore. Maybe I thought that it was like, because I didn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I really needed a break. Um, 
I'm very lucky to have administration who are very understanding, but I think that as teachers right now, the main thing is for us to be honest. And I really resonated with what you mentioned about toxic positivity, because it does feel like that as teachers many times that we are considered like superheroes. And even people will say, you are our superheroes. Well, we we are teachers, right? We're not, superheroes don't, don't exist. And we, and we are people and we're humans. So, um, moving, I think from being honest, from moving from that idea of we always have to be happy and we're going to be happy for the kids and we have to be positive to open up and say, hey, I cannot do this this week. I don't, you know, I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling sick and just being really open. I know it's going to be different across schools and with teachers and the relationship that we build with our admins. But related to what you were all mentioning about being a moment for reset, I think it is a moment to be open about, you know, there are all these things happening and I can't work, I can't function at the same level that I used to function last year because conditions are completely different. And they always talk about Maslow before blooms, right? And they always, but as teachers, if we don't have time to practice that, then it's just the toxic positivity. We're being told to practice SEL, to practice mindfulness in the classroom. But if we have a thousand other things, it's just, we are not present. And um, I attended a, a conference for like global, um, a global conference for educators. And I was there actually this morning in a mental health um, session. And it was very interesting because we were from all different places and people share their experiences with burnout and with, uh, with all of that. And someone mentioned how, um, like I'm doing face-to-face and virtual, but people that are doing virtual that we're not, um, we're not working from home, but we're living at work. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't have time to stop, we really can't focus on that. So I think now for teachers, we really need to be honest and we need to set our boundaries And I know it's hard because we want to give it all, Uh, but it can be like for me, it's even telling the parents, hey, just a a friendly reminder that my office hours are from this time and this time. If you message me outside of that, I'll respond once my office hours start again. Like and and it's friendly and I'm being polite, but I'm setting those boundaries as a teacher that I think especially this year we need to like we need to set them. And also for our students, we help them set those, too. Like, this is your time for studying. This is your time for, for your mindful moment, for eating. And that way they're not, because we have that, right? We, we want to push and push and push. And we're also in a society that makes us think that the, the harder we work, the better it'll be. And no, we can work less and have a better product or a better result. Mm-hmm. Alejandra, um, going back to what you said about boundary setting, because I think that is absolutely essential. I, I was an online teacher for a while um, before I shifted into consulting. And so I totally get that. Um, so, and especially working from home, same thing, like you're you're needing to set your boundaries um, really specifically. Um, what have you experienced in terms of the, the response from once you have to set those boundaries like what is the response from different stakeholders that you work with including students parents colleagues that kind of thing yes i'm I'm in a very let's say like a fortunate position that i'm with a group of people that i think really understand that and i have a leader who really understands that but i think most um maybe from other people from other teachers i know sometimes it's seen as we have this thing kind of, um, 
I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, we don't do it on purpose, but we have, it's kind of like this little competition of who gets there first, who leaves the latest from work. Because we have this idea that the more you work, the better you are. And so that we have these little things that maybe we don't, we don't see them, but we are consciously do. Um, and I, I think the, the hardest maybe reaction or, or um, yeah, response to this, it's from myself or from ourselves. Because then we feel like failures. We feel like we're not doing our, our job good enough, that we're not being good enough teachers because we're not there all the time. Uh, with parents, I think they've been really understanding, most of them, but but it's been an explicit um, set of this is the time, this is what we do, and I've seen more respect from that. I think at first it does take them a while because they, like, if you're a teacher who always wants to help, or especially like me, I don't, I don't really have a family, I only have my cat, so let's say I have, like, I used to have more time to respond and help during the weekends, but this year is very different. So I can't really have that. I really need to set my time for my personal health. Um, so yeah, with them, it's been it's been understanding. But I think mostly working with my inner, with with what I think of myself as a teacher, and understanding that I can do it all, and that doesn't mean that I'm gonna be a good teacher, and setting those priorities for myself. Thank you for that. I wanted to just take a minute to check in with anybody from the audience to see if they have any questions. Feel free to add them into the chat or raise your hand if you'd like to speak um, your question. All right, I'm gonna open it up to Rex, Alejandra and Michelle. If you guys wanted to ask any of each other questions that came up as you were talking, um, each of you were talking, feel free to do that as well. Well, Alejandra, I was interested in what support is your school providing? You know, how do they help you? Are they coaching? Are they providing any kind of support? Or are you pretty much having to figure it out on your own? Uh, so luckily this year, uh, the district where I work, they've invested a lot in social emotional learning. So they do have um, like campus, um, like specialists. Um, United to Learn has also been a partner that they have the social emotional learning initiative. Um, and I'm leading that one at school. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have the access, but I think that as teachers on an everyday work and life, uh, even if we know they're there, we really don't have the time to approach. Mm. So I like if I. You guys are scheduled pretty tight. Mm -hmm. So maybe I do not like in my school, we do it. There's cert certain times um, that is like professional development. But I think in the future, if they wanted to improve that, it could be more of a time before we start school that they start investing on that time that we receive instead of now, because it kind of feels like something that's being add on instead of something that can support what we're already doing. So what I'm hearing is that there needs to be a little bit of change management in the process to be able to accommodate the, the training. Now the training, the other question I have too, is the nature of the training passing knowledge on or is it helping you develop the practice of taking care of yourself. Yeah, the teacher, the teacher trainings that I've attended, not only with the district, but outside of the district 
as well. Um, it's been mostly focused on what we teach our students, but I don't think it focuses enough on what we're doing for ourselves. So, and then I think of that, right, of that idea of like filling someone else's cup, but your, compass, your cup is empty. Yeah. So it does feel like that sometimes, especially in these times, I think everyone should be having some support with their well-being and mental health right. in and, or out of the classroom. So I think as teachers, yeah, maybe it should be something completely separate right. than, than just what we're teaching our students because we then we can lead by example. So what Alejandro is describing is what we found in the 200 schools is that teachers are learning a lot about how to take care of their kids. <clears throat> um, but what happens, and Dr. John Gasco is part of us, what happens is that that's an additional cognitive load for the teachers to have to learn skills, apply it, be measured on it. So that still feeds into the stress cycle. Um, so it doesn't relieve stress at all to know how to take care of others. <laughs> uh, it does tell you where you're falling short if you're not. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the challenge in the conversation. Um, Without a healthy and happy teacher, you can't have an engaged student. It just doesn't happen. Um, so anyway, I I was kind of leading the witness, but that was a little bit of what what I what I anticipated I might hear. Um, you know, when Ali was talking, she said this year is different, and I think that's a fundamental thing our systems are missing. Uh, they're, they've done amazing work kind of like patching the leaks and doing these Tetris-like schedules that are just stunning. And uh, I mean, everyone is kind of performing heroic measures in terms of the overt application of the changes we've had to make. But what, what I think would be an interesting thought experiment and not meant at all to minimize the complexity, but just to kind of throw it out there, it would be amazing to me to hear from teachers if you were going to capitalize on the natural lessons that are happening this year, what would you be doing? Because in 2021, 22, 23, 24, whatever, we're not going to have the same landscape that's providing the natural lessons that could be creating more resilient, more optimistic, more grateful, more amazing more problem solving human beings that 2020 is creating for us. But instead of that, it's like, keep doing everything you're doing, but do it twice in person and virtual. And yeah, do the, do the depends we sent fit? You know, like, no, it's too much. And, and we're completely missing the opportunity to go, yes, everything is different. What do we have access to in terms of developing children and supporting each other that will require us to loosen our grip on the things we used to think were sacred? I think the whole system is still going through five stages of grief, <laughs> of letting go uh, and not getting to that death point of, of I can't recreate the past. Uh, the worst is over. Uh, the new it's the hero's journey. Um, the schools just aren't ready for it yet. So they're going to deny and fight and bargain and, and 
all the burden. I love the natural learning opportunities because those are naturally engaging. They're real, they're relevant, and um, I love that as a as a mind as a model. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of the what you've been talking about too also lends itself to making sure that the educators' voices are heard in the process of the planning for all of these changes that are happening, because I think oftentimes teachers specifically are not included in those conversations and how frustrating that can be as a teacher to essentially just be told, this is how it's gonna go, this is how it's gonna be. You're here to serve your students, but maybe not getting the support that you need specifically and also providing a platform for your voice to be heard as well. I think that's critical and I find it to be, um, you know, in the work that I do as a, an education consultant researcher, it's, I consistently hear that. It's like, okay, have you asked the teachers? Have you, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> it's like, that's the critical part. And I mean, even students too, and, and going back, Michelle, to one of the very important points that you brought up about equity and, and racism that's happening right now, that is critical um, to make sure that teachers have a voice, that students have a voice, that community members have a voice, and that their caregivers have a voice in what changes happen to the system, because that is a, a whole nother stressor that we need to take into account. Um, so I appreciate all of your, your input on that. Um, one of the things that I'd like to ask is what can, kind of going to the tools and strategies part, um, what can educators do um, for their own practice, either for themselves and or with their students, and oftentimes it can go um, in both directions, um, and their students' families? What kind of tools and strategies have you seen with the educators that you're working with or Alejandro with, within your district or around um, the area that you live in? Um, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I could, I could share. Um, things kind of related to, to what I shared er, earlier, but um, I think that as teachers first being honest with ourselves is really important to also to learn how to listen to our bodies. Because sometimes we're, we're just being pushed to do, 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 do. And then we, and, and we're not really paying attention. We're not being mindful because we don't have the time to be mindful sometimes. So taking that time to listen to our bodies, uh, setting those boundaries, those limits, not only with people, but also with the amount of work. I know it's really hard because we always have more things to do, but especially this year, we really need to set a time of after this time, I won't do any work. Maybe I won't take it home. Uh, this day is for my personal, um, for something that I enjoy doing and it's not a responsibility. We really need to set that. Uh, and I think with the, with the students, it's a lot about, yes, the choice, um, teaching them those practices, right? If it's, for example, I always start with a sharing circle in the morning always, and whether it is virtual or face-to-face, -face, and they know that that's a safe space where they can speak up and they can share. But many times, maybe at the beginning, I do lead it. I work with little ones with five and six-year-olds. So at first I will lead it. I'll ask questions. I'll do breathing practices, but it gets to a point where I have them lead, or maybe I'll have someone that helps me. Okay, what breathing exercise do you want to do today? And one of them will lead. And that way they know that 
it's a practice that it's not only something that I say that we'll do, but it's something that they can take outside of the classroom. And I think another really important thing is to take into account that, um, like Michelle was mentioning with race and with other factors, um, because it's very different the way that I would approach, let's say, well-being with like we, me, my experience being a Mexican immigrant, I know that with my family or or people that have a similar experience that I have, well-being will be, I would introduce it in a different way because I know our, our experiences are different and it is complex, but as teachers, and it, and it can be seen as another thing to do, but it'll, it'll help us later on. Once we get to know more of their families, what they uh, even introduce, I always introduce social emotional learning to the parents. I'll send a little flyer and I'll say what it means, what, so they, they don't think that is, oh, it's just a teacher meditating and teaching them to breathe, but what, how does it help them teach students to, how does it help them? I even show them people that do different things. I don't know, I have a friend who's a gamer and I'll show them, oh, he meditates too. Like people that do different things meditate or have a mindful moment. Um, but really kind of like moving it outside of the classroom. So it becomes a, a whole community um, goal. And it's not just the teacher carrying all the weight of caring for all these people and helping them be their own leaders in that social emotional learning component. Mine's simple, sleep, <laughs> get, get a good night's sleep. I mean, um, that is probably has the biggest impact on health, physical health, emotional state, you know, cognitive performance. And uh, the nation was already sleep deprived, but uh, the habits of good sleep, uh, whether it's reading Sleep Smart or Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, whether it's using a tracker, you know, Michelle's got, I don't know if you're wearing your tracker, there you go. Uh, there you yep. go, ring and here. Love the tracking. Yeah, and so one of one of the challenges that I learned and discovered is that our bodies adjust to the level that we can. So if you've got, if all you're getting is a half a tank of gas, your performance and everything adjusts to that. But you don't know that you've got this other possibility. And so unless you've got some device that says, oh, you thought you got a good night's sleep, but here's your recovery level. Um, you don't, you just don't know. And that's what those teachers in the very first thing, they didn't know that they were what they called suboptimal, that they had mentally and emotionally adjusted to this is what it's like. When they started sharing the results, the body language in that room was just people's shoulders drooped. People started breathing. Then the cathartic conversations. Someone said, excuse the language here. So I'm not supposed to feel like shit every day. Um, so one thing to take away, get a good quality night's sleep. If you're getting less than, if you're in bed less than seven hours, then you're legally drunk. That's your brain. Because you're not getting full seven hours of sleep. Uh, if you're in bed for seven hours, you're maybe getting five and a half, six hours of sleep. Um, we've got to know, but we also have to know the kids are the same. And when they move into adolescence, their sleep circadian rhythm goes back two hours. So when we get them up at six in the morning, it's like getting us up at three in the morning. 
Uh, and the research shows that maybe up to 50% of kids that are medicated for ADD, it's sleep deprivation uh, that looks like ADD. So anyway, that's my one thing, sleep. Oof, that's a good one. And, and in order to kind of lean into that suggestion, teachers have to confront and turn off all the narratives in their head about what excellence looks like, about what success looks like, about what's expected, even in a frickin' pandemic. Like right. all of those things have to be uh, acknowledged and dismissed, acknowledged and dismissed. Um, I like to picture, uh, you know, one of those motorcycles with the sidecar, sort of like, I see you get in the sidecar. I know you're here, but I'm going to drive. You are not allowed to drive anymore. Um, because like, if you, if you have those two dueling, you will never set, you will never prioritize sleep. You'll never buy into what all the research says. You'll always say, Oh, but I could, uh, laminate this, uh, you know, landscape and portrait, like you could drive yourself nuts. So I think, I think, that's one piece. And my suggestion always, if you can only focus on one thing, is to regulate your own nervous system. And that looks a lot of different ways, but the most researched, most accessible way is to breathe and to bring those moments of recalibration into your day, you know, even when you're brushing your teeth or when you're starting or stopping your car and, you know, really kind of taking the time to teach your body what baseline feels like again, and then coax it back there instead of allowing it to stay in that fight, flight, or freeze indefinitely. Um, and you know, the other thing, uh, two more things, if it's okay. Um, one is, I think I would just beg teachers to trust themselves and to sort of drop into their own intuition of what they need and what their colleagues need and what their kids need. Uh, right now, everyone is leaking and fraying. You know, nobody is in an optimal state. And so kids are desperate for regulated adults to be in their presence virtually or literally. And so if there's anything we can do is offer the experience of co-regulation, which means my nervous system is calm and I can create a space for you to learn to calm your own nervous system. If I can do that and I only get halfway through the alphabet in 2020, you're, you're winning. Um, but if I decide, no, I'm going to cover every ounce of content I always do when there's nothing external happening, uh, you, you may or may not get through the content. The absorption of the content will not happen. The social emotional development will not happen. And so it's sort of like you got to pick. And then the last thing I'll say, I want to share a quote with y'all that has really been profound for me around this self-care conversation. And it's a quote from Nikita Valerio. Uh, she says, shouting self-care at people who actually need community care is how we fail people. Mm. And so, yes, there's a million things each of us can do every day to improve our wellness. 
but it's a it's two train tracks. There are, there's the individual personal work, and then there's the systemic organizational work. And this cannot let this off the hook. And so it's it's both. It's self care, but it's also community care. It's good. Yeah, all of those things I, I would, um, one of the things that I wrote down is to continue to add to your toolkit of everything that you guys just mentioned and have a community of supportive people, like you said, Michelle, to, to really tap into and to know like you're not alone, like have therapy sessions of just like, is it just me or is this, you know, um, I think that is always helpful. And then having a mantra based on like whatever that you're you're feeling or you're you're working through like the the idea that I'm not doing enough or things like that that's one of mine that is just it's it's a constant tape and that I've been working on um so just having some kind of a mantra like I am enough mm -hmm. I've done enough I am I am enough mm -hmm. I am a whole being and going back to the whole idea of whole um and then also as a technology advocate obviously I love technology but we have so many inputs right now, and especially for educators who are new to the technology scene, this is like a learning curve of this. And so thinking about, again, Alejandra, going back to your point about boundary setting, we have to have boundary setting also on our workspaces and our technology devices, mm -hmm. um, you know, shutting off all of the devices at a certain time not checking them constantly and having a separate space if possible for those things um, just so that you're not constantly seeing it and thinking oh i wonder if oh i just in case i want to make sure because again we're always thinking like how can we help people but at the same time back to alejandra what you mentioned about being able to fill your own cup first so that you can fill the cups of others or the airline you know putting on your mask first before that you can support others is, is so important um, so thank you all. We have about 10 minutes and I would love, um, Alejandra, if you are up for it, uh, to share a mindfulness practice. Um, I have one as well. Um, and I, I feel so badly that Ebony was not able to join us today, but hopefully she'll join us for another webinar to do one of hers, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do one um, in her spot. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over to Alejandra. Yes. Um, so maybe I'll share, I'll share a couple that can be done with like the students and then we'll do one together. Um, so the first one that I do with the students and this one, you can do it if you want. I, I work with little ones, but I also the, the older students like it. It's the one with the candle, with the flower and the candle. So you hold una flor, y una vela, you smell the flower, blow the candle, vela la flor. Sopla la vela. Última, last one. And, and they love that one. They love it. All my students love it. Um, there's another one that I really enjoy uh, with, <laughs> yeah, with the five senses or los cinco sentidos, que le llamamos en español. So we just do, first, we're sitting down. So we do five things that we can see. Cinco cosas, and I'm just gonna say it. Um, but I would ask students to first, where they're sitting, look at five things that they can see. Cinco cosas que pueden ver. So have that moment to be mindful. Then four things, cuatro cosas que pueden sentir. Four things around them that they, that they can touch. So they would maybe feel 
how their clothes is moving next to their skin or if they can touch maybe the table where they're sitting and just have those four things that they can feel. And then three things that they can, that they can hear, tres que pueden escuchar, so just around them. Like I know I can hear the, the air conditioner and my cat is kind of snoring next to me. Uh, then two things that they can smell. And lastly, one thing that they can taste. Uh, and for that, students can, you know, if they're doing virtual, they really love it. I'll ask them to bring maybe something that they're some juice or their favorite meal, and then they'll taste that. Um, and the last one, the last practice, um, this one in English, they, they do in with confidence, out with doubt, but I, I do it in Spanish. So then we'll put our hands here on our heart, manos en el corazón, then we breathe in. And then my students would say confianza, which means confidence. And then fuera inseguridad. Inhalo confianza. Exhalo inseguridad. Last one. And with confidence, out with doubt. Those are beautiful. I absolutely loved the candle flower one. That was so great. Um, okay, so I will lead everybody into uh, a loving kindness meditation. So we're going to um, look at thinking about four different people. So we'll go ahead and just, um, you know, if you're sitting or you're standing, however you want to do it, um, go ahead and gently close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so. If not, you can just have your gaze um, gently on whatever point you'd like. We're just going to continue to breathe. making each breath in deeper than the last. And the first person I'd like you to focus on and to bring into your heart center is a person that you consider a loved one. So choose a person that you considered a loved one and bring them into your heart center and internally or out loud, if you'd like to, you can say, may you be at peace. May you be healed. And may your heart remain open. May you be at peace. May you be healed. And may your heart remain open. And now we're going to move on to someone who might not be um, somebody that you know very well. It might be someone at the local grocery store or perhaps at the um, mail post office, wherever, but it's an acquaintance. You see them regularly, but you don't know them personally. And we're gonna say the same mantra to them as well. May you be at peace. May you be healed, and may your heart remain open. May you be at peace. May you be healed. May your heart remain open. 
And now I'd like you to choose a person who you might have a little bit of difficulty working with or being with. And bringing them into your heart center and saying the same mantra. May you be at peace. May you be healed. May your heart remain open. May you be at peace. May you be healed. May your heart remain opened. And last, but certainly not least, we're going to bring ourselves into our heart center. And we're going to say the same mantra. May I be at peace. May I be healed. May my heart remain open. And take one more deep breath in. And exhaling out. And if your eyes are closed, gently opening the eyes. And we are right at about time. So I would like to take this time to thank you, Rex, Alejandra, and Michelle for being here. And for our audience, thank you so very much for being here. We do have um, the recording that will be sent out. We are also going to have a transcription made. So it might um, be a little bit longer for us to get everything together. But we will have a transcript that will go along with the recording so thank you all for joining us and um, please take good care of yourselves. Thank you. Catherine. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.